This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners. This week, we have a very important episode. We're talking about how COVID-19 broke the American healthcare system and how we as leaders in the value movement can reimagine and rebuild our system to create a more population health, patient-centered, high-quality system. You know, as we think about the disruption of this global pandemic, there's a wonderful opportunity to learn and take advantage of this crisis. And I couldn't be more excited to share with you our guest this week. We have Dr. David Nash, who is the author of the new book, How COVID Crashed the System, A Guide to Fixing American Healthcare. If there's anything that you want to know about the postmortem of looking at this pandemic, what went wrong? What were the root causes of failure? How do we get better? This is the interview and this is the book for you. Not only is this an analysis of the pandemic and the broken nature of the healthcare system that became readily apparent in our society, but this is also a pathway to healing and really looking at solutions for the future. Dan, I could not be more excited to share the thought leadership and the vision uh, from this week's guest, Dr. David Nash. Eric, same. And for our guests who already know and love Dr. Nash, you're going to really enjoy this. And for anybody who's new to meeting Dr. Nash, you know, he's a population health executive. He's the founder of, of the Jefferson College of Population Health in Philadelphia, and he remains its founding dean emeritus. He's at the forefront of value-based care transformation. He's a very close friend to the work that we do. He's on the, uh, the health council for the College of Health Professions at Western Governors University, a frequent contributor to MedPage Today and other healthcare publications. And it's just such an honor to share this wonderful conversation with you today. And I'm, I'm so excited for all of our listeners to hear it. Let's now hear from Dr. David Nash, the author of How COVID Crashed the System, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Dr. Nash, welcome to the Race to Value this week. I mean, I'm so excited about this conversation, and congratulations on your new book, How COVID Crashed the System, A Guide to Fixing American Healthcare. This was a book that I understand was two years in the making. You co-wrote it with Charles Woolforth. Stephen Clasco did the foreword. I had the opportunity to read it myself and for uh, preparing for today's conversation. And there were so many things I learned and I can't wait to talk to you about this important work. Well, great. And thanks for having me, Eric. Really a privilege. And uh, I really appreciate your interest. It was a labor of love during a difficult time. And Special thanks to my co-author, Charles Welforth. Uh, he's an amazing guy. He's won a bunch of different science journalism awards, and he took my thinking and turned it into great prose. So we were, a, we were really an awesome team. Well, I, it comes through in the writing, David, and I loved how you started the book with the investigation. You start the book with, you know, this is a guide to fixing healthcare in the post-COVID era, and you lay out 
this investigation of the root causes of America's COVID crash before the pandemic was even over. I mean, of course, we're still de dealing with it, but there was so much research that was conducted amid the events that took us through the end of last year. And you described this system of healthcare that as one that's fundamentally broken, fragmented, expensive, inequitable, and occasionally unsafe. And you explain that dirty, not so secret of healthcare that we all know, but there's money to be made when people are sick. And, and it's just so hard for these big institutions to change anything. And during the pandemic, when their revenue depended on them not changing it, 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 it became a real big issue. And when COVID arrived on our shores, I think this was an opportunity for the American public to really see doctors and nurses and hospitals overwhelmed. And we had the the terrible scenes coming out of New York with those refrigerator trucks of corpses parked outside morgues and the American people saw the virus spread across the country in different waves with deaths now over a million. And the opening of the book, you really have this great in-depth investigation and you're not really looking for a culprit. You're just looking at the facts and you compared the failures of the American healthcare system to like an an airplane crash. And there was a quote that I really liked in your book where you said, you know, this is the most magnificent of technological machines that has ever fallen from the sky with America recording more COVID deaths than any other nation in the world. And short of death, you also described the long-term illnesses, the bankrupting of businesses, blocked education, the mentally devastating isolation of two years of lockdown. So I wanted to start our conversation today by seeing if you could provide our listeners with some of the findings of your investigation into this. Um, why did Americans get so sick? Yes, Eric, and let's just take a moment, right? A million dead. I mean, who would have ever thought this, right? Back in March of 2020, on Friday, the 13th of March, 2020, I told my longtime assistant, well, bring home two weeks worth of work and I'll see you real soon. And the next time I saw her in person was seven months later. So, and everybody has a similar story. And I'm incredibly grateful that our family survived it all. And we didn't have any major illnesses. And I know most families can't say that. So we got to just take a moment to think about what that really means. A million people dead. It's hard to get your arms around it. I'm a history buff and especially a World War II history buff. And, you know, we had a horrible half a million dead, military dead in the Second World War, over four years of fighting all around the world. And now we have a million, twice as many people, all citizens. I mean, it's just mind boggling. But to get to your question, Eric, you're right. You know, I've been inside the belly of the beast, if you would, inside a major, important regional and even national delivery system like Jefferson Health. And I'm still there 32 years and counting on the faculty. And sadly, myself and many other people in our business, we saw it all coming, right? Not that we saw the pandemic. But we knew what a pandemic could do to such a fragile system that was never designed to improve health. And that's sort of the answer to your first off the bat question, which is, you know, what's our mission? Is the mission of the $4 trillion a year healthcare system to improve health? Well, if that's the mission, we are not doing such a good job because pre pandemic, the four horses of the apocalypse, right? Depression, opioid abuse, alcoholism, and suicide ideology, those four horses of the apocalypse had already pushed life expectancy in the wrong direction in 2019. I could go back to 2013, Eric. That was the first shot across the bow from the National Academy of Medicine when they said, hey, heads up, everybody the baby boomer generation is going to live longer than the millennial generation if we don't do something about this, 2013. So the system was going to collapse under its own weight because it's an unclear mission. The payment is in the wrong direction. 
the incentives are upside down and backwards, I could keep going. So while, of course, I never could have predicted the pandemic, but I was not shocked at what it did to the delivery system. And so that's why we called the book How COVID Crashed the System. And since my background is in part in quality and safety systems and human factors engineering and high reliability, I thought no airplane crash would ever go without a deep investigation. We'd go and find every conceivable piece on the field where the plane crashed. We would ground every 737 Boeing plane until we figured it out. And in healthcare, we've never grounded anything. We just kept flying and crashing for two years. So it's a sad story. But I think what we tried to do in the book, Charles and me, was half the book is, woe is me, here's what we found. And the second half of the book is, hey, here are some solutions that we could all hopefully agree to. But summary statement, this system was never designed to improve health. And the pandemic just shined a bright spotlight on the structural failures, the social determinant of health failures, and the failure to have a clear mission, the mission to improve health. So it's a sad first part of the book story, Eric, for sure. Dr. Nash, as we look back at the early stages of the pandemic, it's readily apparent that we saw overconfidence and hubris from our leaders. And conjoined with the optimism of U.S. exceptionalism and technological superiority, there was this paradox because, on the other hand, there's this overwhelming evidence of a systemically broken healthcare system that you've described that's designed for volume and revenue optimization and not health. And we saw how President Trump led with denial, division, and self-interest as he looked past the pandemic to the fall election. And the crisis of leadership during COVID is clearly evident in statistics that bear out through two years of high rates of infections and deaths and and devastating social impacts, including a mental health epidemic and a breakdown in civic cohesion. And now even two years after the pandemic started with so much known about prevention and with effective vaccines abundant, American hospitals continue to be overwhelmed and forced to ration care. You described in your book how these markers of failure were like broken pieces of a crashed airplane. And they kind of exposed this hubris that led to the downfall of American healthcare, relying on heroic healing rather than prevention and public health, ignoring racial and income inequalities that determine health and, and elevating profit above more meaningful goals, a bias that yielded a brittle system and misallocated resources. So Dr. Nash is the foremost prophet of population health in our nation. What lessons of leadership would you impart to those in charge of picking up the pieces? And how can we overcome this catastrophe to better understand the systemic flaws that brought down the tragic hero of American medicine? Uh, And for those in leadership at both political and industry levels, what can they do to hardwire resilience into the system so we can weather another crisis like this without turning into another national tragedy? Well, what a great series of questions. So look, whatever your politics, I really don't care. (laughs) What we know and what the record shows is that from the President Trump on down, multiple failures of communication, total lack of understanding, lack of transparency. Everybody remembers that President Trump was in India and on the long plane ride back, he was first briefed about what some of the possibilities were. And a lone CDC lifetime officer was out there call, you know, ringing the alarm bells like Paul Revere and basically was shut down. And the director of the CDC at the time, complicit in all of this and the failure to create an appropriate and functioning test, failure to listen to our colleagues in Italy and elsewhere. Let me illustrate it with a great story. The physician leadership at Jefferson, because of our longstanding partnership with key hospitals in Rome and the best hospital in Italy that cares for the Pope, they were getting crushed. Remember, they were suffering pre-Christmas. They were on the phone with our doctors in early December, 2019 telling us 
the worst thing is on its way. It's going to hit your shores. Get ready. So thank goodness the physician leadership at Jefferson at least listened and got enough PPE and we hunkered down and got the incident command system up. None of that occurred at the national level. At the national level, the analogy I'm making is it was, oh, what? Woe is me. We don't need to think about any of this. Remember when President Trump said, I'll see you all on Easter Sunday, April 2020, of course, when it turned out to be a pathetic kind of statement. So without the politics, there's lots of blame to go around. FDA, CDC, HHS, led by a former pharmaceutical lawyer. There was unclear chain of command, lack of ability to understand what the long range implications. Let's not forget we had disparaged the World Health Organization for months prior to the pandemic. We set ourselves up for failure at the highest levels. And I just have to go back to the absolutely, you know, paradigm shifting editorial from the editors of the New England Journal pre-election in 2020, saying it was the greatest failure of leadership in our time. So I stand behind what the leaders at the New England Journal of Medicine said, breaking with tradition for more than 150 years of staying out of an election. I think they summarized it pretty darn well. It was bury our head in the sand and let's hope this will go away. And some of it, I think, is traceable to the divergence going all the way back to 1965 and the signing of Medicare legislation by uh, LBJ, a great accomplishment, of course. But at that moment, no one could have predicted the divergence, the split, the going in opposite directions of the temples of technology of America's major academic medical centers versus the amazing underfunding of the public health system. So from a historical perspective, we could see the crash coming if you trace it all the way back to 1965 and the role modeling and the building more hospitals and the Hilburton Act and expanding medical schools and the call for more doctors, more, 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 and more. More cases, more volume, more hospitals, more doctors, more of everything. And by the time 2020 rolled around, we're talking about the nation's largest industry as a percentage of GDP at $4 trillion, roughly 20%. So, you know, when you look at it from an investigation perspective, you can see pieces of the plane flying off as it's about to crash. We're losing one engine, we're losing an aerolon, we're losing all hydraulics, and then sure enough, we're going to plow into the mountainside. And some of it, of course, is human error, like all plane crashes. Some of it is structural. And some of it are issues we didn't even really ever contend with, like the fact that we had 40 to 50 years of underfunding of the public health infrastructure. So if you look at the recent data, of course, by the time we're into the pandemic in 2020, it shined a light on a $4 trillion industry with most experts agreeing that one quarter to one third of that spending is of no value. So let's use the one quarter figure that comes largely from the work of uh, Will Schrank and others in JAMA in October of 2019 in their well, well-researched paper. So if a quarter of all spending is wasteful and of no value, maybe we'll find a way in the future to reallocate some of that waste and fund the public health infrastructure, fund community health workers, and we'll be, as you alluded to, more resilient and more prepared. I think the other bright light that the pandemic shined on the broken system, not only the waste, but it really made us stand up and recognize the power of the social determinants of health. Today, I prefer to call them just the determinants of health, Yes, they have a lot of social roots, but the determinants of health are basically your zip code, you know, where you live, more important than your genetic code, your credit score, that gives me huge insight into whether you have the means to even buy the medication we're going to give you and stick to it and take it. So between your zip code and credit score, we know an awful lot about people. 
And then you'd add in there, you know, structural racism, redlining, inadequate educational opportunities, gun violence, crime. It's a scary thought. Finally, you bring it all home in Philadelphia, which has been my home for 42 years. So of the nation's most populous cities, the 10 most populous cities, Philadelphia is the poorest. One out of four people lives in poverty. And of those, one half of that one quarter, they live in what Uncle Sam calls deep poverty, which is a euphemism for they can't put food on the table. So let's summarize. If you're poor, you can't have access to care, you're uninsured, you have to go to work because you don't have sufficient vacation or sick days, you have a family to feed, then you're gonna get COVID and it's early in the pandemic. We don't know clinically what we're doing. Well, you're probably of color and guess what? You're gonna have a high mortality rate, seven to eight times the mortality rate in the white community. And that's exactly what happened in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. You know, when the mayor of Chicago was confronted by her own head of public health for the city and learned that the mortality rate was seven to eight times greater in the black community in Chicago. I mean, Mayor Lightfoot couldn't believe it. And so, you know, look, the vision of those portable, terrible trucks outside Queens General Hospital in Queens on Long Island in New York, you know, terrible, terrible. But from our perspective of the investigation, not a surprise. The system just couldn't handle it. And of course, if you were a fee-for-service private practice primary care doctor, your office is closed. You're not making any income. So just when we needed more care coordination and more primary care doctors to step up, many of them were very rapidly being put out of business. A crazy thing. And some hospitals, not Jefferson, but many hospitals, of course, when there was no volume, no revenue, what did they do? They laid off the very people we needed to care for the really sick. Nurses, pharmacists, nutritionists, people who clean the floors, custodians. Oh, and even in some places, laying off doctors too. So the whole thing was upside down and backwards. But I would summarize by saying leadership from the very top. The good news is hospital leaders rallied. We've got to give them credit. They didn't create the determinants of health. They certainly could do a better job contending with them. But the hospital industry didn't create the jam that we're in. They were, in some respects, complicit with it, but they didn't create it. They didn't create poverty. They didn't create gun violence. They didn't create structural racism. They're sort of the society's answer to trying to fix these intractable problems. You know, great hospitals like Jefferson and many, many others, we never ask at the door if it's an emergency, can you pay? You know, we'll take anybody who really needs our help. On the other hand, that's a heroic vision. The truth is, without complex cases of cardiac disease, orthopedics, neurosurgery and cancer, without those four product lines, we would be out of business. And so would every other major academic medical center in our great country. So this is not a sustainable model. I think that's the conclusion of this question, that the resilience of the people is pretty darn amazing. My wife and I have a daughter who's a doctor. We describe her story in the book, a frontline hospitalist delivering care. I mean, she wore a garbage bag because her hospital at the early days didn't have sufficient PPE. I mean, we were worried for her safety. So thank goodness that's in the rearview mirror. So are we resilient? Heck yeah. But if we're just going to go back to doing the same thing, this airplane is going to crash again and again. We would never tolerate this in aviation. Never. So I think we have a lot of work to do. And that's what the second part of the book is all about. 
Well, Dr. Nash, the American people are clearly resilient, and that goes back to the roots of our founding as a country. It's kind of hardwired into our cultural DNA, but there's another aspect of our culture which is really based on that sense of exceptionalism. And I think that as we look at the crash that occurred during the pandemic, that sense of exceptionalism really did make us vulnerable and it led to a profound scale of failure. I mean, we, we saw governors, for example, and many individuals that refused to wear masks or take precautions. We saw vaccine refusals, which elevated infection rates in certain areas. We in few other countries, the populace was able to follow the rules and during these strict, short initial lockdowns, and then they eventually emerged to live these normal lives. But we never really had that. We weren't able to defeat the disease early on. It raged you know, for years and years as we're still living with it. And the sense of exceptionalism, you know, it often I think it helps. It gives us it puts blinders on us where it we reject comparisons to other countries, perhaps to our own detriment. And, you know, there's a lot of things to think about in terms of this larger systemic failure and where our culture contributed to that. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on that in terms of how our country responded, the vaccinations, the this American capitalist system that we had that does have a strong profit motive, which served us well with Operation Warp Speed, where you had pharmaceutical companies creating this astonishingly effective vaccines and with unprecedented rapidity. But we won the advantage in the vaccine race through innovation, but so many Americans died. I just wanted to see if you could speak to what is it about our culture in America that did make us so vulnerable? And how does, how does this contribute to the neglect of relatively inexpensive preventive interventions that are really needed in our healthcare system instead of these heroic hospital measures and the, the cutting edge technology that we often depend on to save the day? Yeah, it's a really important question. And Charles Wolforth and I really struggled and worked hard to try to articulate this, Eric. But I think when we look in the mirror as a country, what what did we see? What do we consider, you know, American culture? And certainly aspects of it are great, of course. And I'm a patriot in every sort of way possible. And I'm a capitalist and I get it. But what we saw when we looked in the mirror was this sense of rugged individualism and, you know, get the government out of my hair. And when you really look at the research evidence, it comes down to a lack of trust in our leadership and in our government writ large. Australia being a great example where, of course, we're not an island nation, we're much more heterogeneous, but in nations where the social science research demonstrated a greater trust in the leaders, including Italy, a greater trust and a greater commitment to community, Look, we're not the first persons to articulate this. This goes way back to the bestseller, you know, bowling alone, the disintegration of the sense of community, the fact that, you know, 20% of Americans move every year or every other year. You know, we're, we're a nation that believes that we're still in the covered wagons heading out west. And we circle those wagons. And what we ended up doing was shooting each other in that circle. Instead of shooting out, we were shooting each other. And in, from my perspective, again, whatever your politics, we're the only Western nation where depending on where you live, who your state leadership, whether it's red or blue, if you're in a red state, you are less healthy. So you were gonna get hit worse. And we had governors, not only governors competing for limited resources, let's not forget the crazy stuff that went on to get those ventilators, that was one crazy thing. What we also saw were governors who said no mandates, no mask wearing, no mass vaccination. In fact, to this day, there are events in certain states like Florida and elsewhere, where even in the last month alone, the governors in these states said you cannot mandate testing, you cannot mandate prior evidence of vaccination. What kind of insanity is that? You have state level medical personnel who also are flaunting the evidence. Oh, and a large number of crazy people promoting 
non-evidence-based, you know, cures like ivermectin and so on. So look, the culture, culture eats technology for breakfast. Everybody knows that. So our culture of rugged individualism, America first, forget what those brilliant Italian doctors are telling us. They don't know anything. When you add all that up, it made for a toxic witch's brew of supreme overconfidence that we would crush this thing. And all we needed was Operation Warp Speed. Let's take a moment and look at that. So sure, the economic incentives to these companies was pretty powerful. It turns out that an unheralded two scientists, a man and a woman, working at the University of Pennsylvania for decades in near obscurity, already had the technology, the mRNA work and technology ready to go. When you speak like I have to the experts at Moderna and Pfizer and elsewhere in the deep dive we did on all of this, sure, it seemed miraculous, but it was a testimony to decades of amazingly powerful, great bench research for which our country is a recognized leader. Now, let's juxtapose those amazing outcomes to our population health outcomes. How do we do compared to the rest of the Western world pre-pandemic and when it comes to heart attacks and cancer and you name the diagnosis. So you know, we're not in the top 10 of any measure of the health of a population pre-pandemic. We are in the top 10 in the most number of Nobel Prize winners in science, thank goodness. But when it comes to the population, 370 million, we aren't anywhere near the top 10 in any measure of the health of a population. And as I said earlier in this wonderful program, we were headed in the wrong direction in 2019 with average life expectancy going in reverse gear, first time since it started to be measured in, in 1945. So that culture actually played a major role in crushing the healthcare system. We also have a culture of hero worship. And here I'm going to go out on a pretty thin limb to say stuff that is provocative, which is holding up doctors, nurses, and pharmacists as heroes, I think is harmful. And it turned out sadly to be the case. A year and a half into the pandemic, doctors were changed their clothes when they left the hospital. They didn't want to be jeered in the grocery store or doing their errands. We went from clapping every night at 7 p.m. to screaming at physician leaders who were begging people to wear a mask and getting a vaccination. There is just no good explanation for all of this other than deep tribalism, deep cultural distrust. When you look at the minority community, you know, it's a very sad story. Goes back to obviously Tuskegee and other terrible public health events. No wonder they didn't have trust in a largely white medical establishment, Philadelphia being a poster child, once again, Jefferson had to get you know, mostly minority doctors into a van to try to get vaccines into the community because people weren't coming forward to get vaccinated. And we're only gonna be as good as the weakest link in the chain of vaccination, meaning the more people who get vaccinated, less likely we'll have these variants and on and on we go. So I think the culture of lack of trust, the culture of deep racism, the culture of rugged individualism, and the culture of, well, science will kick ass of whatever problem we have, let's just get a vaccine and then we'll be over with it. That culture just all combined into a terrible headwind, if you would, a roadblock, whatever analogy you like, that prolonged the suffering and no question led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. And this is true now in Deborah Burks's uh, memoirs uh, and others, Andy Slavitt's book, Scott Gottlieb's book, my book. I mean, folks who did the research and looked at the evidence have all concluded that our cultural failures cost lives. 
How sad is that? So summarize, I would say many countries that we may turn our nose up at, like Australia, like Italy and others, did a great job because there was fundamental trust, a sense of community. Did they get everything right? Of course not. But I think uh, they rose to the occasion from a communal perspective. I wore that mask not just to protect me, but to protect you. And it's very still to this day hard for people to understand that that mask wearing was a sign that I care about you. And in a tribal culture, why would anybody care about anybody from another tribe? That's really what it comes down to today. Dr. Nash, I want to go a little bit further into the conversation that you've started about the racism and the inequities that uh, became apparent with COVID. We know that when it first hit, uh, patients rapidly filled safety net hospitals, public and not-for-profit hospitals that take uninsured and Medicaid patients. And we saw how COVID really crushed the black and brown hospitals because of the way the disease hit communities of African and Latin American descent. And and it shocked Americans who hadn't understood how race defines who lives and dies in our country. Despite the high rates of infection and death in low-income communities, COVID tests primarily went to residents of affluent areas where residents were being tested at six times the higher rate, which is really disheartening to see how the healthcare services went to where the money is and how poor neighborhoods had fewer clinics where testing could be done. And it kind of just makes obvious the statement that you made with the zip code being so important to one's health. And you discuss in your book, the implications of institutional racism and government policy and changing economy in the last 40 years, and how it really cemented the poor in place. And even as the country produced more super rich families, just like to hear more perspective about what the COVID crisis teaches us about health disparities and and this given the spotlights that have been put on inequities within our population during the pandemic. Are you optimistic that value-based payment models and the advent of lifestyle medicine will take us in the direction of eliminating health disparities in our country? Wow. Well, sad that we even have the term safety net hospital. What the heck does that mean? Well, in America, it means a hospital for the 40 million people who don't have health insurance. The only Western country in the world where we don't have universal coverage. I, I'm not advocating a single payer system, certainly not. What I'm saying is we're the only country in the Western world without universal coverage and without universal access. So despite the gains of Obamacare, the system was totally ill-prepared. So the whole idea of calling something a safety net is sort of a terrible, sad state of affairs, but it's a term we all embrace for sure. What I think really the pandemic shined a two bright spotlights on were the you know lack of primary care in the communities of color, lack of access, lack of insurance, and then you add on to that research evidence of 20 years that says when people of color do access the system, they don't get the same level of attention. They don't get the same pain control medication. They don't have access to certain technologies. We knew all of this. So that was also part of the investigation. This was a structural failure in place waiting for the final thing to bring the airplane down. We didn't create that. It goes back for decades. So I, I think all of those structural racism issues as it plays out in healthcare, it really comes down to this, which is provocative and sad. If you're poor in America, you are almost by definition ill health. You have ill health. You are not healthy, almost by definition. And that we could tie it to you know, food deserts, obesity, cultural issues, employment factors, educational factors mean they all go together. And some of this is uh, remediable, you know, definitely. Housing being a huge piece of this in the erosion of the middle class. But I think the punchline, very sadly, is if you are poor, you have poor health. That is a national embarrassment and sinful almost in my view. Now, your second question, 
you know, am I optimistic? Yeah, I think so. I, I wouldn't be doing this at my age if I wasn't, <laughs> you know, 32 years on the faculty at Jefferson. It's a record I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, but my adult children think I'm a walking, talking dinosaur. Others have said I'm Don Quixote, you know, uh, striking at windmills, and I don't even realize it. But I think if the combined efforts of people like Charles and me and, and many other smart people, Robbie Pearl, Bob Wachter, Andy Slavitt, Shantanu, a core group, let's call it 12 or 50, Lena Wynn, you know, 15 voices who all pretty much agree that we could do better. That's what gives me optimism for the future. There's lots of opportunity to do better. Now, will value-based care, population health management, well, I think those are steps in the right direction because we also know from the research evidence of three decades, if we change the economic incentives, if we realign the incentives, make it mission-based to improve health and pay to improve health, I think we're gonna meet with great success. We talk about when we created the first College of Population Health in America way back in 2009. And remember, we opened the doors to the Jefferson College of Population Health on September 9th, 2009. And that's easy to remember, 9909. It's a year before Obamacare, right? September 2009 to March 2010. So I am still optimistic that there's great opportunity in a country with our level of uh, resilience and wealth, and let's face it, entrepreneurism, innovation, and capitalism, it's a powerful combination to tackle all this. And I'm optimistic because I do see bright lights on the horizon, mostly in the private sector, and mostly funded by non-government entities, by private equity, by venture capital, by the amazingly smart young people who are out there trying to build a better mousetrap. I'm very optimistic based on you know, what I see on the horizon to try to tackle the challenges we lay out in how COVID crashed the system. I hope I'm around <laughs> to see some of the innovation bear fruit, to see digital health really take hold and to see the vision that Steve Clasco and Sandra Galea lay out in the intro and the forward to the book about health assurance for the future and, and focusing on going upstream. Uh, we like to say in conclusion to this question, we like to say, let's shut the faucet instead of constantly mopping up the floor, wondering why we need another mop because the floor is still wet. Meaning of course, Let's not build another bariatric surgical operating room. Let's go focus on nutrition. Let's not start another cath lab. Let's go focus on diet and exercise. I mean, all of those things. So I'm optimistic because if we have the right tools, we have trust, we have the data, I think we have a really great opportunity. And that's why we wrote the book because we ultimately are optimistic about the future. Well, Dr. Nash, I share your optimism for the future in population health, but I'm not sure I'm as optimistic about public health. And you write about this in your book, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we've seen life expectancy increase progressively since it's been measured in the 1940s. If you look at the 15-year period between 1990 and 2015, life expectancy went up over three years. Now it's on the decline. There was that research that came out of Harvard and University of Michigan, and it found that 45% of longevity increases were due to public health, and only 13% is due to medical care. But when you look at the per capita cost, I mean, we spend upwards of 11500 per person, but only 3% of that goes to public health. And the Public Health and Emergency Preparedness Program, which is the node of the nation's network to respond to disasters, I mean, we've seen funding 
slashed over the last 20 years, and it's really led to disastrous consequences to the health of our population. And we certainly saw that during COVID. I just wanted to ask you, uh, as we look at evaluating the, the crash that happened to the system and restoring confidence in science and public health, how do we bring about this dramatic reemergence of the public health system? I mean, given what we've learned, do you foresee policy changes that are going to make a longer-term sustainable investment in public health? And since the most important objective in population health is really about keeping people healthy, and public health funding is so crucial to addressing social determinants, do you think public health is finally going to get the full seat at the table that it rightly deserves? Sadly, the short answer to that great question is no. Here's the good news. Like our great colleague, Lena Wynn says, public health saved your life today. You just don't know it or don't appreciate it because we've got clean water, vaccinations, pollution, tackling, you know, all of the other cornerstones of public health. And your numbers are right on $400 per year. That's the spending on the public health infrastructure versus $11,000 per year. That's the spending on the health care system. So where I think we're going to go is we've got to get deeper into why is public health taken for granted? Well, it's because it's all about community and nutrition and exercise and behavioral economics and tackling homelessness and tackling poverty and tackling gun violence. Those are public health problems. But in our country, we don't see it that way. It's not framed that way. We're not paid to fix it. If you go back to the middle of the pandemic in Philadelphia, you know, the public health leaders, we had a great commissioner of public health in Philadelphia at the height of the pandemic who had good relations with the delivery system but they were in a separate silo. They had their own communication, their own computer system. We didn't share data all that readily. Uh, the, the rules as who, who allocated a vaccine were different in Philadelphia than they were in Pittsburgh, than they were in our state capital at Harrisburg. I mean, we've got to make public health, we have to put that on sort of, if you would, the same pedestal that we put subspecialty medicine. So to really answer your question about the future of public health, we have to go deep into the training system for doctors, nurses, and pharmacists. And we have to promote the tenets of public health, epidemiology, community health workers, all of that. We've got to put that in the curriculum on day one. We do not do that now. That's why Charles and I devoted a whole chapter to the future of medical education. We interviewed leaders at some of the more innovative medical schools like Geisinger and Bernie Tyson and elsewhere to sort of say, hey, there's a new way, a better way. Let's build a better doctor for the future. So am I confident about the public health infrastructure? Sadly, I am not because they're still not a part of what we aspire to. The average well-meaning, super well-educated medical student of whatever color or gender, they see who gets the rewards in the culture they're in, both explicit and implicit, and it's not the public health officers, for sure not. I'm smirking, sadly. It's the super subspecialists who come in and save the day, do the procedure, do the cool high-tech thing. There's no temple of technology devoted to prevention. In a nutshell, that's the problem. So I'm not optimistic that the public health infrastructure will get sufficient funding and will be better prepared. Uh, I'm really not. Again, we look for the quick fix. That's American culture. Let's get the vaccine and get it over with. Now, sure, it was a fantastic scientific accomplishment, but it does nothing to tackle the determinants of health. It's a separate silo altogether. So public health tackles those determinants of health because we know that's 80 plus percent of the story. But the typical approach here is, you know, doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, we're not social workers. I get that. We're not community health workers. I understand that. 
But I think if we could make public health folks aspire to public service to promote health, that's a game changer. And that would mean in part refocusing on the mission. That's what we talked about 45 minutes ago. What's the real mission of our industry? I think we need to have a rather difficult in the mirror self-evaluation. Who are we and what are we really here to do? I know it sounds corny, but it's not. It's a very important conversation. And maybe from that conversation, we'll get a better appreciation for the power of public health. And we have some great spokespeople looking at that and talking about it now, including in no small part our book, but many other great voices joining our voices to say, hey, public health saved your life every day. You better be aware of how important that is. Dr. Nash, that's so true. I think about who we are and what we intend to do and who we want to be as a society and and better care for the people that we care about. And we see that the system, as you've laid out for us in this conversation, just wasn't able to do that in its uh, current structure. And there was really a crisis for most healthcare providers during the pandemic, and they saw economics basically collapsing around them. Hospitals and practices that were funded by fee-for-service models lost huge chunks of revenue. They incurred exceptional costs. The cost of clinic labor leaped upward for all hospitals due to huge overtime. Meanwhile, insurance companies kept banking on payments from policyholders and posted these windfall profits. And, and the government stepped in quickly with the CARES Act and gave relief payments that saved hospitals, and the most vulnerable of which had helped needy patients at great cost. But the formula for those payments really perversely benefited the hospital's the most that needed the money the least. And we saw hospitals that turned away the sickest, the neediest patients, and they did the best of all. And most outrageously, some rich hospitals refused COVID transfers from struggling safety net hospitals or rural hospitals. And they put their financial results above human lives that were not backed by good insurance plans. Can you speak to the stressors that we saw in various parts of the healthcare delivery continuum and in your research, what were some of the bright spots you saw with specific leaders who were able to adapt and lead their organizations through the pandemic crisis well? Wow. Well, let's tackle the stressors first and then end on the bright spots if there are any. So look, you, you articulated some of it. Our research, I think, confirmed based on direct interviews with the people in charge that, let's say, Chicago, Phoenix, I mean, we had documented evidence that some providers clearly tackled it head on, took every case, did whatever they were able to do, tried to transfer people, couldn't get it done. Certain hospitals, especially in affluent communities, just basically closed their doors to the poor who were uninsured and very sick, who needed super high-tech care like an ICU or ECMO or you know, God knows what else. And we had multiple, multiple instances in multiple cities. So I, I think the stress, that certainly was one stressor. The second stressor is about the payment system. You know, Jefferson, like every other big place, gladly accepted the CARES money, no question. And guess what? We have spent every nickel of it. And guess what? We still have a huge deficit because the model is still based on volume. So here we are turning the corner two and a half years later from a pandemic to an endemic situation, but economically we're in worse shape than ever before. That's the sad truth. We spent every care nickel we were given, which was vital because it kept the lights on and kept people employed and kept the place running and being able to take care of people. But now we're facing at least a two to three year uphill battle to, if you would, recover our usual sources of revenue because the whole machinery is based on volume, more orthopedics, more cardiology, more surgery, more subspecialty stuff. That's what keeps the lights on, generally speaking. So that's a stressor. The labor situation, which is a very complicated problem of the you know, great resignation, which certainly applies to, sadly, many nurses. 
And yes, it's true, we're spending inordinate sums to get you know, nurses from pr private systems. But I think another stressor that most folks don't realize you alluded to, which was in the fee-for-service world, they had to close their doors. In the managed care population health-based world, their doors stayed open because they were getting paid on a per member per month basis to keep people healthy. So the sadly, the, the truth turns out to be lots of doctors who told me face-to-face -face in my career, I'll never join a big bad managed care company, couldn't wait. They were stampeding to find out how to join Humana, Aetna, Cigna, whatever. It is amazing to me how quickly their overview of the system changed when they saw that population-based systems actually had a system to figure out who needed care. They got telehealth up and running because the economic incentives were all there. They had the resources. So these stressors, we're not done with these stressors. Care money is over. Now we're looking in the mirror thinking, uh-oh, this volume-based model can't work. So now the bright spots. Well, I'm hopeful and even optimistic about, let's call it population health management or value-based payment. You know, we're almost using them as synonyms, which that's okay for today. I'm all about, if you do a good job and you can prove it and measure it, you ought to get paid equal, if not more, than somebody who's doing a less good job. The truth is, we have a lot of measures out there today based on safety, based on patient ability to do their activities of daily life, their mental health. We have all kinds of tools to measure all of this, and we ought to be able to pay people more who do a better job, pay providers more who do a better job, and we ought to be able to pay providers of all types and sizes and shapes who, if we refocus the mission, that's the bright spot. We go upstream, shut that faucet, don't mop up the floor, shut the faucet, and pay organizations, delivery systems to shut the faucet. My view of the future about another bright spot are the payviders. It's a clunky term. We've been promoting this term pre-pandemic going back to 2018, 2019. When providers and payers join forces to capture more of the premium dollar, I think, and there's evidence, lots of evidence to support this, all of a sudden we start thinking more about the population. Let's get that diabetes nurse educator. Let's get that exercise physiologist. Let's get that behavioral health expert. Let's get the behavioral economics people involved. Let's coordinate care like crazy. Let's focus on the 5% of people who drive 40 plus percent of the total costs. Let's coordinate the heck out of them. I mean, those are the bright spots. So payviders, disruptive primary care companies like Oak Street and uh, Iora now and Absolute Care, uh, the whole industry of disruptive primary care, that's a bright spot. The growth in different bundled payment models, whatever you wanna call them, they're changing virtually by the day, how we pay for chronic kidney disease. We know when you realign the economic incentives, you improve clinical outcome. I'm gonna say that again. When we change economic incentives and align them towards health, we improve clinical outcome, we reduce waste, and we improve patient satisfaction. So those are the bright spots for me looking into the future. Well, Dr. Nash, as you uh, describe these bright spots and we discuss this optimism, you know, it really reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Winston Churchill. He says, you know, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, but an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. And as I read your book, what I loved about it, the second half of the book, you know, after you lay out the investigation and discuss the crash, then you really talk about this pathway to healing. You mentioned the rise of payviders, 
the opportunity we have to reimagine medical education, the hyper accelerated pace of telehealth adoption during the pandemic and how that can bring about this wave of consumerism and technology enablement. And certainly there's a role to play here with employers and leading the future of health reform. There's so much we can do in terms of healthcare culture and creating high quality healthcare for the future and getting off of our fee-for-service addiction. I just wanted to kind of land the plane here, so to speak, and using the the, the analogy, let's talk about the future of population health and the, the pathway to healing. I'm really interested to get your parting thoughts on the nation's progression to population health and all that we've talked about with social determinants and drivers of health and wellness and prosperity. Do you think now that we've had this pandemic, is this what we needed as a country, kind of like a shock to the system to really bring us to a tipping point where we can begin to have these honest and transparent and open conversations around things that we need to do systemically to address our healthcare system and improve it, go upstream, find ways to better prevent and manage disease, create more of a wide-scale adoption for value-based population health. I'm, I'm really interested in your parting thoughts on just the the key capabilities that we're going to need for the future and how do we learn from this pandemic? I remember when I, I went to Dachau and concentration camp and the first thing I saw, I saw was never forget. We cannot forget what we've experienced in this catastrophe and, and we can't repeat the past. So I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that as we look towards the future to have a better tomorrow. Yes. Wow. Where to even start on this? Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, my fervent hope, and I know that Charles agrees with me for sure, our, our hope is that the book and many other books like it, that we're the black box. We have the data. We can explain why the plane crashed. What we can't do by ourselves is fix the software in the 737, find the people who signed off on the software that they knew was faulty. And of course, like any major catastrophe, it follows the Swiss cheese model of the holes line up and you could put a pencil through the six different slices of Swiss cheese. That's the imagery that's been around in every NTSB investigation. So how COVID crashed the system is just one of the black boxes that has the data that explained why the plane crashed. I think moving forward, the new plane, if we could, that will take off and be safe, will have widespread precision medicine. I think that's a huge positive thing for the future. Better data systems and early warning systems about viruses and other threats in the environment in the future. Better educational systems, especially for doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, and a curriculum that matches up with a workforce that looks like the people they're caring for. These are the drivers of health, the recognition that public health is really what it's all about. And we need greater support for the public health infrastructure, reallocation of resources away from waste, better evidence-based practice using artificial intelligence. I'm involved in three companies working exactly on that focus right now. So there's a lot of optimism. But I think your sad analogy of visiting a Nazi death camp, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. You never again certainly is applicable. We end the book with a really great story from the amazing naval historian Ian Toll and his trilogy about the war in the Pacific during the Second World War. And I was so taken by the end of the third book that when the sailors and the soldiers and the Marines came home, they didn't want to talk about it. You know, when the dying stops, the forgetting begins. That is the, that's our culture. When the dying stops, the forgetting begins. And how COVID crashed the system is, we don't want to prolong the dying, certainly not. We, we want to prolong the conversation, and we want to have the conversation filled with facts and truths that will guide us to a brighter future. Well, thank you, Dr. David Nash, founder and dean emeritus at Jefferson College of Population Health and author of 
the new book, How COVID Crashed the System, A Guide to Fixing American Healthcare. Dr. Nash, I'm so honored to have you spend time with us today on the Race to Value podcast. Um, how can our listeners find out more about your work and, and get a copy of your new book? Great. Well, thanks for asking, Eric. Sure. So you could go online. Our publisher is uh, easy to find, www.romanrowman.com. So roman.com. You could go to Amazon and order the book right now. It'll be out this fall. And so we're very excited and we, we hope that it'll get great traction. And we recognize that we're joining a cacophony of like-minded voices, but we've come at it, I think, in a, in a different way that I hope will resonate with people. So go to Amazon, go to Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N.com, get your book now, and it'll be shipping out just after Labor Day uh, later in September. Well, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Nash. We really appreciate your leadership and service to our industry and in our country as a whole. With leaders like you, I do feel optimism that, that we will finally get there in terms of creating a, a more equitable, safe, and high-quality healthcare system. Dr. Nash, yeah, thank you for me as well. Well, thanks again. It's a privilege to be a part of it.